the Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome back to The Things We All Carry. In preparing to record this intro, I had to consider a few things, kind of consider where I'm at for the week, consider how things are going, how this job of mine, this career of mine is coming to an end and and new openings or new chapters are are beginning. I was in the gym this morning and uh, I could feel some anxiety building and uh, it continued to build. And I, I, I knew if I didn't get it off my chest, it was going to sit there for a while. And, and so I reached out to a friend and, and you guys might've heard him before. I know you've heard him on the show and, and you might've listened to his show. He's a uh, TJ from keep the promise. And I just said, man, the predominant mood is, uh, it's just nerves. Uh, I'm scared shitless. Like what the fuck am I doing? And, uh, he was quick to get back to me and, and I had to laugh because his, his reply was, yeah, what are you doing? And then he, then he, he, kind of leaped into action, you know, well, let's figure it out. Let's make a plan. Let's talk. And, uh, I don't, I don't know that I was necessarily ready to talk or, or was looking to talk at the time, but TJ being TJ, he, he picked up the phone and he called me and I said, let's, let's talk about this. And, uh, he shared some insights with me and, uh, he gave me some advice and he listened (laughs) and, uh, what he said made sense. And, one of the main topics was growth and you know, to grow is sometimes a painful thing. And I can't, I can't forget to keep that in, in sight for myself. What I'm doing is, is I'm, I'm starting a new growth. And so I I have to let go of some of the past to make room for that growth. Um, and I have to keep in mind that it's up to me to keep parts of the past that I want to keep. So one of the things that, that is kind of eating at me lately was making this decision to step out of the fire service means I lose a community. And uh, between TJ and uh, my friend down there in Florida, James Gearing, they both have reminded me that you're not losing a community. You're, you're losing the job and the, the, the title as active firefighter, but you're not losing the community unless you choose to lose it. And... Uh, James is the same way. You know, I reached out to James Gearing at one time and said, Hey, did you have these feelings when you were leaving the, the fire service? And he, he got back to me pretty quickly with, with a, an answer that it was, was well thought out and, and much appreciated. And I'm not losing a community. What I'm doing is I'm going to, I'm going to continue what community I have. I'm going to grow my community and we'll find my tribe as TJ and I talked about finding a tribe, you know, identify who's in that tribe and that tribe is, it's not just like-minded people because that'd be, that would be boring. Um, I want interesting people. I want voices that, that differ from mine at times. I want people that tell me that I'm wrong, kind of put me in my place and, and have conversation about it and, and create growth that way. So with that, I have to break my mold and I have to, I have to be the one that reaches out. I have to be the one that initiates. I have to be the one that says, hey, let's go get breakfast. Let's go get lunch. Hey, let's hang out on the phone for a minute. You want to record a show with me for, you know, a 30 minute, you know, conversation. I want those unfettered conversations that you have in the firehouse or on the table or in the unit 
where you know no feelings are going to get hurt and no subject is off limits. I, I thrive off of those. I love them. They, they make me laugh. They, they make me cry at times. They, they, they always challenge me. They always get me thinking. And uh, I don't want to lose that, that piece especially. You know, that, I think that's so important for our community, who we are. We, uh, we, we like to challenge each other. We like to make fun of each other. We, we like to bullshit with each other. And we kind of thrive off of it. We, we, we get a perverse bit of satisfaction and, and it, the dark humor is, is it. And it's there for us for support and for therapy and, and for distraction. So that's, that's kind of on my agenda in the next little bit is identifying my tribe, identifying where I want to go with stuff, identifying tasks for myself and, you know, finding the new normal. What's going to be the new normal? How do I establish a schedule for myself? How do I, how do I find my daily path, my weekly path? How do I find um, the challenges and the interests and the, I don't know, the, the people. I, I, I don't want to lose the people. And that's what I worry about. And that's on me. I am an introvert through and through. And I would prefer to sit at home and be, a, be in a cocoon and kind of ignore the outside world. And, and I can't do that right now. I, I'm going to have to go against that nature of mine. And I'm going to have to seek that human contact, that interaction, the, um, yeah, the conversations. I thrive off these conversations and I just want to have more of them. And I want to cast that net as wide as possible and create, like TJ and I talked about, create a tribe and grow and grow from where I am now, grow as a human, grow as a man, grow as, as, as a former firefighter, grow as, as an interviewer, as a podcaster, and, and see where we go, see where I can take this, see how far I can take it, and see, see where I end up. And I don't know if ending up is the, ending up isn't the, the, desti- the destination isn't as important as the journey, because I, I need to thrive off this journey, and I need to, to, to like I said, I just need to thrive off the journey. I have a lot of thoughts swirling around in my head and some of them make sense. Some of them don't. And and that's, if they don't make sense to me, they're definitely not going to make sense to anybody else. And so they're hard to get out. Uh, And when they do pop up for me and I go, Oh wait, I recognize that I am reaching out to people and I'm, I'm saying, Hey, you know, this is what I'm thinking. What, what, what do you think? Do you think I'm crazy or do you think it's wrong? Do you think it's right? And uh, in a way that's really kind of new for me. And so it's, uh, it just adds to it for me, you know, stepping out on my own and then recognizing that I need help and asking for help isn't something I'm used to doing, something I'm comfortable doing. <clears throat> so I'm learning how to do that and I have to learn in order to th- thrive and survive. Today's guest is, is a different one for me. I enjoyed this conversation in, in, for many reasons. Um, when my mom was on hospice and she was dying, I, um, I had questions and I was pointed in the direction of 
Julie. Julie goes by the name of Hospice Nurse Julie on Instagram and TikTok, and she's got a massive following. I mean, massive people. People look to her for all kinds of suggestions, advice, and how to face the prospect of a loved one dying, or maybe how to face the prospect of themselves dying. This is what she does. Hospice work is what she does, and she has decided to share the ins and outs with her audience and her followers on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. You can find her and you can find all these, all these tidbits are just so valuable. One day, right before my mom died, my mom's breathing took a turn and I recognized it for what it was. I just didn't, I I don't know. It's, it's very different when it, when it's your loved one and they take a turn and I knew what it was. But I, I don't know if it was, I didn't want to believe it or if maybe I wanted to, in a weird way, celebrate it because I knew that finally her suffering was going to come to an end. But at the same time, I was watching this TikTok and it was from Julie and, and she was talking about agonal breathing and what's normal at the end of life. And I looked at this video that she posted and, this, and the words that she was saying and I looked at my mom and I went, holy shit, that's exactly what it is. And, and it came at such a fortuitous time for me to go, okay, the end is, the end is soon, not just near, it is soon. And sure enough, my mom was into agonal breathing and she was going into two breaths per minute at most. And I, I'm telling you, 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 it's hard to believe what the human body does at the end of life, but she went into two breaths per minute. And sometimes it was 40, 45 seconds in between breaths. And she did this for nearly 10 hours. And I'll say it again. My mom was a fighter. She fought to the, to the very end. Even when her spirit and her mind and her emotion was gone, her body would, was refusing to give up. And I knew that I had to talk to Julie and I had to, to touch base with her and, and kind of thank her for what she did for me. As I was, as I was going through that, it kind of normalized it for me and it normalized some of the emotion and it brought information to light that made sense and informed our decisions and, and made us competent and comfortable in our, in our decisions and our care. Um, she's an amazing resource for anyone going through this whole prospect of hospice or death and dying. She's an amazing, amazing resource. And if, if you're faced with this for a loved one, find her and listen to her, reach out to her. Cause she's, she's available. She's, uh, she's been a nurse for, and I'm going to get this completely wrong and hopefully she doesn't get mad at me for 16 plus years, eight years as an ICU nurse. And I think another eight now as a hospice nurse and this is what she does. She has just released her first book and it's, and it's called nothing to fear. And her job right now, as she sees it outside of being just a hospice nurse is to, to make sure that people know how to, how to see a loved one through to the end and to take the fear out of it, to take the doubt out of it and to, to maybe make you comfortable in in that situation, in that transition from, from living to, to death. It's never going to be easy, but at least with somebody here who's a professional who's seen it and has seen just about everything 
and is telling you, hey, this is normal or, or look for this or look for that, it makes it a lot easier. You guys can find her on Instagram or TikTok as, like I said, at Hospice Nurse Julie. She is a fantastic resource. If you're going through anything with end-of-life care and hospice, seek her out. Find her. She will, she will answer so many questions for you. Um, this is a different episode. Like I said, this is, this is going away from, from my normal, and I think it's important. And I hope that people listen. She, she, we talk about what first responders need to know in, in these situations because, you know, family members have inevitably called 911 when something happens, even though we're really not there to help. But we have to know what, how to kind of help a family, even if we can't help that patient. So this is episode 104 of The Things We All Carry with Julie McFadden, also known as Hospice Nurse Julie. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Let's have our conversation. Let's do okay, it. Let's do it. All right, well, what is it? Morning time for you, right? All right, well, it's actually afternoon here, so I'll say good afternoon and welcome back to the things we all carry. Uh, today, I have Julie McFadden on with me, and this one I've kind of been looking forward to because um, whether she knows it or not, she had a connection in my mom's death, and that sounds kind of weird to, to make as an intro, but um, I was at my mom's house, and she was in hospice, and most of the people that listen to the show know about it because I've been pretty open about my mom, and I've recorded a few intros about her death. Um, but on the last day that she was alive, I was actually watching one of your TikToks and it talked about agonal breathing and, and what to expect at the end of life. And as I'm watching it, I'm, I hear my mom and I'm like, yeah, she's in it. And I know she's in it because from a first responder standpoint, I've heard agonal breathing before, but it's different when you hear it from, from a personal standpoint and your, your, your mom or a loved one is, is doing that. And there was a video you had up and it, it was my mom to a T. And, and, and I had to kind of share it with my sisters because I didn't think they understood what agonal breathing was and what it meant. Turns out that my mom decided to be a champ at it and keep it going for, for about 12 hours. So, and, and I, I, could, I, I couldn't fathom how she could keep it going, but then, you know, following your page, listening to information, death is different for everybody. And the body is an amazing thing and it doesn't want to quit working. So that being said, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. And where can people find you on, on social media? Well, thank you for having me. And um, yeah, so people can find me. I'm Julie. My name's Julie McFadden. I'm a hospice nurse, but I'm on social media as hospice nurse Julie. So basically anywhere you get your social media, that's my name, hospice nurse Julie. You can find the videos. You can find the videos there. Awesome. So how did you get started with the, the social media aspect of, of being you know hospice nurse Julie? And why? I know, right? That was, that was so, um, it was so crazy because uh, I, it really was, I was really not, I had no thought about it. No thought, no, <laughs> no, no goals in mind. Um, a couple of years ago, it's been about two and a half years now. Um, one of my very good friends, dad was dying. And I was a hospice nurse and he was, his dad was on hospice and he was um, calling me a lot 
I was a, ho- a hospice nurse, not doing anything with social media, social media or having it even in my brain to do anything about social media. Uh, but I was sort of rattling off things to him because uh, I was kind of his go-to person to ask questions to and things. And he was, he like pumped me up so much. was like, I can't believe you know this stuff. I can't believe you can just like rattle off these things. People need to know this. Um, you need to tell people this. Like you're so good at explaining things. You really need to tell people this. So much so that he actually like bought me a microphone to start a podcast because he thought I needed to do a podcast where I talked about death and dying. And I was still like, I don't really want to do that. First off, podcasting is really hard and I didn't want to have to edit all the things and I just didn't know where to start. Uh, But he was really pushing me to do something like that. And then in that time period, I went home to see my nieces who are like tweens. They're like 12 and 13, I think at the time. And they were on TikTok which I thought nothing of except for like a place where like young kids did dances and we were like doing them together. And I got on TikTok so I could like watch their videos of them doing fun dances. And that's where I started seeing that there were people my age, I'm 40, (laughs) like on TikTok talking about like space and like gardening. And I thought it was really cool. I was like, this TikTok is actually pretty great. I didn't know. Um, I'm going to try to make TikToks. So that's where the TikTok thing came in. And so I just made a few videos and I think I looked back now the fourth day in to making videos. One of my videos went viral and like mega viral where I got like 10,000 followers overnight. And then it like just and then I think in the first month I had like 100,000 followers. And then in the next year I had a million followers. So it was something that just sort of it felt really organic and it happened on its own. And I didn't really have to try which um, was great because I feel like anything I'd have to like really work at, I probably wouldn't do. Maybe that's, maybe that's the key I need to pay attention to. Stop trying. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I really not trying. I was not trying. Um, Even now, even now, like now that's like like half of my career, I still am a nurse, but uh, I also do this almost full time. I try really hard to keep that energy of like not trying to hustle and make something happen. I always just stick to like my heart and what am I actually trying to say? Who am I actually trying to talk to and teach? And it's been working out for me. So it's been really amazing. I can't believe it. Truly. So you're in California, but I know you're not from California. How do you end up in California? (laughs) Where, where, Where do you originate from? Where were you born? What was, what was life like before California? Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. I'm from Erie, Pennsylvania, which is like Northwest Pennsylvania near like Canada. It's cold and dark <laughs> and super snowy. Um, and it is East coast, but I consider it, it feels more Midwest now that I don't live there. I can kind of see, but yeah, so I'm from Erie, Pennsylvania and I grew up there until about, I was 25 maybe. And then I took my first nursing job in Baltimore, Maryland when I was around 25. And then I lived there for a few years. And then I took a travel nurse position to California because I had visited some friends in Los Angeles and I just always knew I would get back there. Like I really, out of all the places I ever visited, I loved Southern California, loved it. And my sister happened to move out there about a year before I did. So it all ended up kind of being pretty serendipitous and just working out. So I took a travel nurse position so I could travel out there. And I've been here in Los Angeles for about 12 years. Now. How long have you been doing hospice work? I really should figure this out, but it's around seven or eight years. Okay. It's like half and half. 
I was an ICU nurse for about seven or eight and then a hospice nurse for about seven How eight. and why do you make that transition? Well, ICU nursing, whoo, man, I could do a whole nother podcast. I could do a whole nother like TikTok uh, about that, like just a whole nother um, like it just it was so traumatic. I don't know how it is for first responders, but like uh, I know it's like a different ball game, but it was just so much to me, so much suffering. You really had to rush around, even though you only had two patients max. It was like they were usually so sick and you're like trying to keep people alive and you're supposed to like care, but like hurry up and do mm -hmm. it like like so many tasks to like that. It felt very uh, it just was not fulfilling with my personality, even though I I like the intensity of it because that's also my personality to like do intense things. It was like so fast and so. Um, I just felt like not everyone is dying in the ICU. That's for sure. Many people live because of the ICU. It's a, it's a wonderful thing that we have. But I just felt like there were so many people dying that we knew were going to die. And we weren't honest about it, even to ourselves or like to ourselves as healthcare workers. We would we would know that this person's likely going to die here or if they don't die here, they're going to die. Uh, they're not going to get out of the hospital. And I felt like we were not telling the families that. We were not being super open about that. And it was really weighing on me. And I don't think it's because anyone was purposely trying to hurt someone or keep information away. It was like we all wanted to like live in this fantasy world of like, but maybe we will help them. And uh, it was that that made me be like, and then, and then I started to see after a while of being a nurse, I felt comfortable that I had a voice. So I would voice in rounds like, I think we need to have a family meeting um, to talk about end of life goals. And then I started seeing how like one person speaking up, it was like I was like addressing the elephant yeah. in the room and then everyone would go, yeah, 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 let's have a family meeting. And then we'd have the family meeting and then the person would be taken off life support. And although that's sad and I felt some responsibility, it's like, wow, if I never spoke up, they probably wouldn't have done that. But I knew that was the right thing. I knew that was the right thing to do. At least tell them that there's options out here, that they don't have to keep doing this and that, that likely they're still not going to live even if they do keep doing it, even if they do keep doing all the different um, interventions. Anyway, so that got me into this whole thing of like, okay, well, if someone's going to die, there has to be a better way to do this than in, the ICU, in an ICU bed, not prepared. Yeah. So Because at the end of the day, a lot of these people that I was seeing were people that had some type of advanced cancer and they were getting a surgery because of it and then the surgery went mm -hmm. wrong or something happened right so even if they got out of the icu they were still like had this advanced right. cancer that no one's talking yeah about. they still had a, a death sentence it's waiting like waiting so, for them yeah and it's like they had to spend the last six months six months of their life in a hospital bed sedated yeah. Like there has to be a better way. <laughs> we have to tell people more about what's happening as healthcare workers. We need to be a little or a lot more honest, I think, about, I mean, we're all going to die. And there's certain diagnoses you get that like you are going to die yeah. from that, unfortunately, right? So it's like, why can't we be a little more honest up front so this person can choose how they spend the rest of their life? And maybe it is they still choose to do all the treatments and all the things and that's okay, but at least have at least know the other option um, and what that looks how like, do you, which would be hospice. How do you quote unquote do oh, that honesty though? Like how is that, 
do do you understand what, what I'm trying to say? Like like some people don't understand how to do that and, and be, I don't know, uh, humane about it. Oh, I know. How do you do it? I think it really takes. Um, I mean, communication and empathy. It does take a like not to say like a special person, but there are some people who have tact. And who are good with people and they have good communication skills. And those are the people who should be in those kind of jobs. Like, I don't know if that's a special job or, or, or we don't have it right now. I mean, there's just like some, just to give an example, there are some oncologists who are great at doing that. There the bedside manner, you mean? Or the, the talk, was the, the, the compassionate talk yeah, about, the are- about reality? Yeah, about real. Yeah, I think there's some there's some doctors and people who work in healthcare and just uh, social workers and whoever who are great at doing it, and there's some that aren't. I know when 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 my guess- mom was first diagnosed with cancer, it, it was it was weird because she she's she was a very religious person and and she said something about God to to her oncologist and he 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 basically didn't brush her off but but basically said, well, this is my battle and this is what I'm doing. And she was at first she was like, well. I don't know how I feel about that. And in my opinion, I was like, I want that doctor to feel that he's the one doing it, not, not uh, subscribing to a higher power to, to help do it. And, it. and and now that wasn't tactful, but he was able, to, well, it was tactful. He was able to do it and not, not offend or, or alienate her, but make her think about what he was doing at the same time. Yeah. I think it's all in the delivery too. There's just some people that are good at delivering information. And there's some that aren't. And unfortunately, um, yeah, I think it's unfortunate. Like there's no, like doctors and nurses are not really taught how to talk about this. Yeah. I mean, think about my, my nursing school, like literally did not talk about yeah. death. I didn't learn anything about it. I learned everything I know about death and dying and how the body works and like what's actually happening physiologically and biologically and metabolically through being a hospice nurse. Yeah. Like that's even as ICU nurse, the stuff that I learned the first couple of years of being a hospice nurse, my mind was blown. Like I wouldn't have believed the stuff as an ICU nurse. I mean, of course, my background in ICU really, really helped because I, I understood a lot of things. So when I went into hospice, I could see how it was all kind of playing out. Um, but it's just so crazy. We're not taught this stuff. And I don't think they're really taught it in medical school. Well, and we're not taught it. it, it in EMT or, or paramedic classes. I, I mean, if, if we do, they give, they give very short, I don't know, short lessons or discussions about it. And you're not really taught that empathetic approach to, to families experiencing loss or death. Yeah. And I think it takes, um, someone not being afraid to, to be in an, in, in an uncomfortable conversation. You have to, you have to practice it. You have to be the one as the healthcare professional to not be uncomfortable saying dying, death, dead, to talk about things that no one wants to talk about. It's and it can feel really, really uncomfortable, but you still should have it. And I and I and I want to make sure I say, like, I don't necessarily think people need to do it my way. Right. They need to go on hospice because they're because their uh, disease is technically terminal. I don't I just think they need to hear that sooner rather mm-hmm. than later and i know it's i'm not an oncologist and i'm only saying oncology because that's like one of the main things that people die from but there's other diseases of course but i know that's really really difficult to take someone's hope away so early um and i don't really want it to look like that i want it to feel like 
listen, hope for the best. My friend Sammy, uh, uh, um, Dr. Sammy, who works in Canada, she always says, hope for the best and plan for the rest. Because like you at least need to know that there are other options out there. Like you need to know that like um, if you choose to, you don't have to do anything or you can try X, Y and Z and then know if that doesn't work and you're kind of sick of this, um, you can do something else. Because I think if people knew. And I, you can tell I'm like on a soapbox. Right. But there are some diagnoses that that it is truly like you're likely going to die in a year. Mm -hmm. And that's that's horrific. But that's the yes. truth. And you need to know the truth so you can decide how you want to spend that last year. Yeah. Because many people would say, fuck it. I don't want to, I don't want to do X, Y, and Z. I, I want to do all the things I thought I, I thought I had a lifetime to do. It would really do people a disservice by not telling them that. Yeah, that's, that is a conversation I actually had with my mom years ago when she was first diagnosed with, with, it was stage four lung cancer at the time and it had metastasized as well. And it was a, it, she was she was almost eighty, and it was it was obvious that what the outcome of this disease was going to be. We she could fight it, and she did she did choose to fight it for for a while. She she went into chemo, and she had some she had she had radiation, and 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 it did extend a, her her lifespan by a couple of years. But early on, when she first got that diagnosis, it was a very real conversation of Hey, listen, if you choose not to fight, that's your choice, and we support that. It wasn't easy to say, and it wasn't an easy conversation, but she was very aware of, of what she could or couldn't do. But that's what is because of what you're saying. She had people willing to have that conversation with her. Yeah. And I do think, and believe me, if I got diagnosed with something like that tomorrow, I, I would weigh out my options. And if there was a surgery I could do and a chemo or radiation that would extend my life, I would do that. I would do that. I just think it's, like you said, it's important to know all of the pathways yeah so they can choose yeah and, and then when she got to the point where it was obvious that the where the, the chemo wasn't going to work anymore because it had it had spread to the blood and it became leukemia and and it was at that point it was obvious there's there was nothing so then that's when hospice came along for her um mm -hmm. so hospice what exactly is hospice let's just start there yeah so it's so hard to like talk about this without making it totally boring <laughs> because it's like a long, I, to me, it's like a long thing. But I will say, and this is, sounds cheesy, but I really mean it. Hospice to me is about living. People think it's about dying, but to me, it's about living out the rest of your life the best way yeah. you can. So hospice is, at least in America, a federally funded program. So every hospice should technically act the same. They, because we're, our, our boss is Medicare. So there are some hospice companies that like follow Medicare guidelines. There's some that don't. Um, all of them should be basically offering the same stuff. So that's I always say that because I always hear people be like, well, my hospice did this, my hospice did this. And really, they should all be following the same mm. guidelines, um, which is not necessarily that great, if I'm honest. Like the hospice companies that are like doing above and beyond things, they're either paying out of pocket for themselves like they're or they're committing Medicare fraud. <laughs> Because, which again, like I'm not, I'm not, whatever. I have no opinion about it, but I just want to make sure that's clear because there are some hospice companies that, um, yeah, it's just a highly regulated uh, Medicare, like federally funded program. Right. Um, that's boring stuff that I think people don't really understand, but I like to help people understand that. 
And in general, what it is, is you're in your home. Usually, sometimes people go into hospice homes, like they go Mm -hmm. somewhere where there's like eight beds or 20 beds and it's like a hospice home or it's a skilled nursing facility. And then hospice comes to you. But a lot of times it's in your home. And if it's in your home, the family does most of the work. And then the hospice kind of comes in and out to help you with things. Um, And the whole point is to have a team of people, a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, a home health aide, a chaplain, sometimes a music therapist, depending on the different hospice. Um, There's volunteers that can help uh, just to help manage your pain or not even pain. I'm sorry. Not everyone on hospice has pain, but manage your symptoms um, and just help you kind of through the process of living and dying. And the whole point is to stay out of hospitals, stay home, and live out your best life. What is, what is, uh, what's not the point of hospice? What, what does hospice not do for a patient? Oh, that's great. Yeah. Hospice does not, uh, if you're on hospice, you cannot continue with treatments. So that's one thing we don't do. So whatever, let's say you come on to hospice for pancreatic cancer. So the thing you cannot do on hospice would be treat your pancreatic cancer, meaning you couldn't get chemo, you couldn't get radiation, you couldn't get um, a surgery. Now, if you came on to hospice with pancreatic cancer and heart disease, you still could treat your heart disease. And so you could still see your cardiologist, you could still take cardiac meds, things like that, but you couldn't be treating the pancreatic cancer because that's the reason why you're on hospice. Okay. Does that make so sense? So it has to be, You're you also, can't treat that that specific right. reason because there's one reason it brings you to, to hospice. Whatever that reason is, yeah. is hands off at that point. Okay. Yep. Yes. So you are, and you're also not allowed to be in the hospital and be on right. hospice. So like uh, if you, if you were on hospice and then something happened, right? I don't know what, God forbid, but you like broke your mm-hmm. leg or something. We would act tell you to go to the hospital, but if you went to the hospital and got admitted for your broken leg, you would have to immediately automatically come off hospice. Hospice, which is Medicare, basic, and if you're, if you're not on Medicare, it'll just be your insurance. But they basically say like, here's this whole package of things we're going to give you for free through your insurance or through Medicare. It's all free. You're not going to have to pay for it. But you cannot get this over right. here. And this over here is like the hospital chemo, radiation, mm-hmm. surgeries, you have that. So you can't do both. You have to basically kind of sign over and say, hey, I'm done with the hospital. I'm done with treatment. I'm coming on to, to hospice. Yeah, my, my mom had a couple of issues with that. You know, she knew that it was time. Um, but she also was she also was like, well, I, I should go see the doctor about this. And I'm like, well, it's, we're, not, not, we're not really going to have anything done about it. Like she had a spot on her forehead or, or whatever. And she was well, there's, you're not going to get treatment for it because we're not going to go into the hospital and get it taken care of. So there's no real reason. So she had a trouble. She had a bit of trouble grasping that at times. I know so many people do. And I feel like it's the way you talk about it, because even if you could, because a lot of people will have like all of a sudden a new pain will start and they'll want to know mm-hmm. why. Right. Why pain starting? What's happening? And on hospice, it's like, we can't really tell you. And guess what? Even if you didn't leave, because I always say to people, listen, we're not chaining you to your house. Like, if you want to come off hospice, just come off and go to the hospital and go figure it out. And you can always come back on. That's an option. People can do that. It's kind of a pain in the butt for everybody and for them, too, because it's like a lot of work to try to get back onto hospice. But you can do that. But the whole point is why? Because you go there, they tell you why. 
you're having this new pain. Maybe they can figure it out. Maybe they can't. And then the treatment's still going to be the same, which is likely just managing the pain through pain medication. So it's like, why yourself through all of that to maybe get an answer that you're not going to do anything about anyway? What? But it's hard. It's very hard. Easy for me to because she did experience new pain and she did experience this and that. And, and, and it kind of like, you know, it said, it said emoji. Hmm? I don't know, you know, yeah. and, and you kind of have to be okay with, with saying that quite often. I know. Yeah. And just certain personalities, um, again, like my, if whenever, you know, my mom's still alive, but if something were to happen to her, you know, or she gets something and, she ends up dying from it. I know just because people will die how they lived and their personality comes out in that in a good and bad way, right? Like my mom is so independent. She's fiercely independent. She's fierce. She always wants to be moving and doing things and being in control. So if that gets taken away from her, which it likely will sometime, she's going to have a hard time with that. That's going to be hard. Like when I thought about your mom, like agonal breathing for 12 hours, I thought like, oh man, that lady, like what a hard ass. Like, look, that's, I mean, I don't, I don't know your mom, right? But I bet she was fierce. Oh, she was fierce. And she like, was definitely fierce. Yeah, because that personality comes out in death too. Yeah. And um, and that plays a, a, a big role in hospice care. You have to be able to like meet people where they're at, know their personality, and personality plays a lot into how someone Now, dies. I know personally I've had two different experiences with hospice. My, my dad one degraded very quickly. He had Parkinson's disease. He had some surgery and he went into basically sepsis. And over the week, like within a span of four or five days, he's in hospice and, and, and that care, he died in hospice within that span of four or five days. So it was a very quick thing. And he went to a facility to, to get that. So I had that quote unquote taste of it. And then my mom did it at home with my sister and, and I had that taste of it. My mom went into hospice in January and didn't die till Halloween night. So she, wow. that's what I mean okay. by fierce and a fighter. She, she just, she had yeah. some, she had identified what she wanted to live for and she, and she just, she kept doing it. Did, were, the, were those uh, a good last? Cause that makes me really happy. Actually, that's someone that she got to really like utilize hospice for right. a while. Cause I think a lot of people are too late where they only are on for a few days or a couple of weeks. Did she have a good experience with, I mean, as good as it with can hospice be. hospice in general? Like, were, were they good at managing her pain? Oh, yeah. Were they like, yeah. Okay. yeah, she really did. And she, okay. yeah, like I said before, she was, she was religious, she was a spirit, very spiritual woman. And she, she made connections with the people that were coming in to work with her. And she had, well, she had a variety of nurses come in, as you probably experienced in California as well. She, she had one chaplain, you know, and she had one reflexologist. Yeah, she had one of this. And so she, she did make those connections. As a matter of fact, her, the chaplain, she asked that chaplain to, to speak at her, her celebration of life, which, you know, in that short amount of oh time God. that they knew each other, that w- that was pretty special for her. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I think I, 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 and the reason I say it is I experienced two different deaths with, with my parents where I think my dad's was so sudden and he, it wasn't a peaceful death, but my mom's was coming for a while and it was more of a peaceful death and, 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 and not to get too morbid, but I could see that on their faces when, after they passed away, I could see the difference. Wow. So. Wow, now that yeah. I brought it down even more, let's talk about something okay. else. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm trying to think of what first responders need to know, firefighters, medics, especially because we are coming in there. Our, we're, we've got that, that, that God complex where we're going we're gonna to save the day, right? But you go in a hospice yeah. situation, if, if something happens, you're not there to save anything. 
Yeah. You know, so is there, is there anything that first responders or firefighters, medics need to know when dealing with a hospice situation or a hospice patient or, or the family of, of a patient? I know it's so hard because this is what I always think. Um, cause I've been in the house when people have called paramedics and I'm, I'm there as a yeah, hospice nurse. I'm out, I'm just, out. And, you know, and the paramedics are looking at me like, seriously, yeah. you yeah. know, and right, the family, it's like, um, so please know if you're a paramedic, hospice nurses and hospice workers are doing their best to help families and patients understand what's happening. And sometimes just because of personalities, family dynamics, people are not getting it right. And they are going to call 911 no matter what. And uh, it's unfortunate, I think, not because like just because they're not fully grasping that, like. It doesn't matter what you do. This is going to happen. Um, so know that we're doing our best because I do see a lot of paramedics look at me like, why are we here? <laughs> you yeah. know, and I'm like, I know. Um, and I think just what you said, like, and I'm sure you guys already do this, you know, look for DNRs. Uh, our pulse. Sorry, we have pulse. What do you guys have over there? Yeah, no, DNR. DNR. It's like a. But I, okay. what, what's pulse? A pulse. Basically, the a pulse is um, physician's order something something. It's like a pink mm -hmm. sheet that you put, like you said, you bridge, and it just says if they're DNR or full code, if they want intubated right. or they don't, and they want to. So, I would always say look for that or ask people about that, and um, to call us if we're not there. I don't know if they can if they can call us or not. Like, can they call hospice if family if you know someone's DNR and family's still freaking out? Call and I think that that might confuse things because it's it's a state to state thing as well. I believe with with what you can follow, can you use a copy of the DNR? Does it have to be an original DNR? Does it you know can you know does medical power of attorney count? All of that, and and I think maybe that's a state to state thing. And and the best advice you and I can maybe give a first responder today is know your state laws. Yeah. Right. So. Right. And as hospice nurses, the best thing we can do is educate the family. I mean, I mm. give when I, I, I'm lucky enough to like work in a state like California and I'm a unionized nurse, which is amazing. So I have like time. Like I am, I realize that most nurses in general don't have that. Right. And you need time to be able to like when I do my admissions for hospice, I am giving like scenario after scenario. So they fully understand what they are supposed to be doing because a lot of families just don't know. So they'll call 911. And then first responders are just doing what they're right. taught and what they're to do, right? They're, they're, they have a whole different mindset. I totally get that. Um, so on our end as hospice nurses, education, education, education. Like we think people understand what's happening. They don't. Because most of the time when I say, if something happens, if they start feeling short of breath or feel like they can't breathe, call us. I mean, they can do what they want. But I say, you know, call hospice. You don't call 911. And they're like, what? Right. Almost every single patient in their family is surprised by that. But I think as hospice nurses, we take for granted that people know what's going on. They don't. No, I... We have to talk about it, educate, yeah, take examples. Yeah, people don't understand what's going on. It's, it is, it's frightening how unprepared and undereducated we are as a, as a population with death. Yeah. And it's because it's taboo. We don't want to talk about death, especially yeah. our death or the death of a loved one. Exactly. You know, it, it is so <laughs> taboo. It's, it fucking scares people. Yeah. You know, in our minds, yeah. we want to live forever. Well, 
Uh, newsflash, we're all dying. We're all dying. And I will say, though, people who are willing to even say, like, I don't want, um, you know, like people always say, like, what do you say to people who say they're afraid to die? Well, one, almost, I mean, I'm afraid to die. I talk about it all. I'm still afraid to die because it's the unknown. Like, I, or not even like afraid. I just don't want to. Yeah, right. right. I don't want to die. Um, but I think even just saying that out loud, the parents and the patients and the people who say to me, like, I'm afraid, I don't want to, I'm angry. That's all you need to do. Like, you don't need that helps you get to a place of acceptance. Just saying those things out loud. helps you. It's a released grip, even just a little bit, that grip of fear. Um, People think they need to do these profound things. And it's like, no, you just need to say it. Talk about it. A little bit. Yeah. And you you have to from a from a family standpoint, I think that you have to it's almost like giving permission at times. Yeah. So I, I at least I think that I, I kind of found that in both situations. I th- one of the things I wanted to ask you about is how do you in hospice are there you you have to see these de- definitive stages of death, correct? Mm-hmm. So what do you normally you 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 get a patient and how does that normally progress for you? What does that look like? And and how do you approach each of these stages? Yeah. So I will say everyone is different. People do not always follow the stages. So it's hard. And I always preface that when I'm talking to families. So I personally always use the Barbara Carnes, like little mini pamphlet. Have you Mm -mm. seen it? It's called Gone from My Sight. They call it the little blue book. I like Barbara Carnes to me is like the queen of hospice. Um, And she followed, she went up when she first followed me back on Instagram. I about (laughs) fan girl because I'm obsessed with eat. I've since like met her or, you know, like we're friends now, which is mind blowing. But anyway, this book, Gone from My Sight, the little mini pamphlet, you can get it for like $3 on the internet. Most hospice companies have it. Um, I go through that with the family because, you know, once you're, it's harder, like the further you're away from death, which of course, like no one really knows, but in general, the further you're away from death, the grayer it is, meaning like you don't see, it's just a gray area of like when this is going to happen, right? Because you're further away from death. So if someone says like, we don't really know when, uh, they probably really don't know when because you're not showing enough signs to make us think it's sometime soon. So what I normally start seeing is people uh, are just really tired and they don't really eat. That's the first thing I usually, and that's like about, I mean, if you're coming on to hospice, you're usually about six months out, depending but super tired and not eating and depending on your disease too. So different diseases will have different symptoms, but this is just generalized. And, and you'll be like pretty fully functioning, still getting up and walking to the bathroom yourself, maybe even showering by yourself. That's six months out. When you're about like three months out ish, you're probably again, sleeping more, eating less and by sleeping more i mean like 16 hours a day maybe sometimes like nodding off during the day maybe only one meal a day or like small little bites all day long now you might need help getting to the bathroom or using a bedside commode instead of like a regular toilet you need someone to help you shower so you'll start seeing things like that it's always like a functional decline a mental decline uh, maybe some maybe some confusion or like disorientation when you when you first wake up, right? Um, and then decrease in food and water and sleeping. So those are the main things you see with everybody, yeah. almost. 
And then that just keeps happening, right? So the, the, the confusing part can be like the actively dying phase is like the easiest one to see. And that's like the last phase of life. People are usually in it for a few yeah. days when they're fully unconscious, changes in breathing, changes in skin color, not eating and drinking. Um, it's called actively dying. The, 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 the time before that, we call it transitioning, which is like really hard because everyone would label transitioning as something different. And that's like, it's before actively dying, but you're definitely seeing a big change in your loved one if you're the person. And it's usually like, now they're only taking spoonfuls of, of food a day. They're sleeping 20 hours a day. They're having more confusion. Now they may be incontinent. You have to change them. They have yeah. to wear briefs. Like that's, they're, they're more asleep than they are awake. That's like that transitional phase. And depending on the disease, right? So there's sometimes different diseases will show different things, but that's like the general thing. And the, be the best thing you can do during all of those times is listen to your loved one and let them be the guide. Don't force them to do anything. Don't force them to eat or drink and just make sure they're safe and clean and comfortable. Yeah. Does that answer no, the question? No, it does. It, it's hard. It could, things are, certain diseases are very specific. It too. definitely answers the question. But as I sit here and I'm listening to it, I'm, I'm going right back to what you said. Everyone dies differently. And, and, and I can only speak from my own, my own experience. And, and, and my mom stayed in that transitional stage for, for a long time. And it was, you know, she, yeah. she had some changes, but she was, she was eating and she had, she, that, that actual act of dying was, yeah, it's probably about a week, I think, you know, to be honest with you. And, and then there were definitely stages where I said, oh, oh, wait a second. That's a change right there. When, and I noticed that when I looked at her on like a Sunday night, I was like, she's not with us anymore. Her body's here, but she's not here. And, and that's when I knew yeah. that, you know, that was definitely the end. But listening to that, it's, 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 it's so, it's not a linear thing though. Right. I mean, cause I, I know what I experienced was, was you'd have this drop and you're like, uh Oh, it looks like it's the end, but then it would come back, but it never came back to that same level. It, and then you, you plateau for a little bit and you would drop back down. You get a little worried again and, and, and you'd call the family and then it, she'd come back, but it was again, not to that level, the previous level. So it's that almost a staircase down. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's like different for everybody. Not everyone will have that staircase. Like I had a woman once who was very elderly. So I was so surprised, but she was like the matriarch of the family. There was truly like dozens and dozens of grandchildren and great grandchildren. People were trying and she actively died, meaning fully unconscious changes in breathing, death rattle, like for two weeks. I've never seen that, but I do feel like people will hang on because they're waiting for people or they know, um, you know, it's just personal. So I just think it's so funny because I, I could really say in one breath, like everyone dies the same. <laughs> everyone looks, everyone looks the same when they're dying. And then the next breath, it's like, oh, but it's always different. And it, so yeah. it, because the actively dying phase, people usually do look the same. But what's different is that how long it takes, um, how they sound, how they act. Some people will just lay there like they're sleeping. Some people will be a little more restless. It just really depends. Um, and that's the reason why I show vid actual real life video of it because it's important people see it. I think before it's their loved one. I think people need to know what's normal. I hear so often my loved one suffered, she suffered. And then I ask, well, why do you think that? What happened? And they explain the actively dying phase. Right. And they just think someone's suffering. 
during it. It's, it, it, death is such a, it's, it's such a weird journey. Mm -hmm. It's it. And, and that, that simplifies it. I understand that, but it is such a weird journey to, 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 I mean, I can't even imagine what it was from her, from her point of view. I, you know, I don't know what she thought in that actively dying stage. That's, that's the weird thing. We don't know what goes on right there. You know, I know yeah. she talked about her mom and seeing her mom and having these visions but we don't know what was actually going on in her brain. And I know that some people are going to say, well, she was seeing visions of, of meeting family in, in the afterworld or what, whatever. And, and I, I, hesitate, I hesitate to say that. I, I stay away from that myself. But I, I don't know. That, and so it's a, it's a strange trip to, to take. And, and it's, it's like, well, you, well, this is going to sound morbid. Well, I don't want to die. I'm kind of interested to see what, the, what it is it, in a yeah, weird way. I know. Oh, totally. I also think, so just so if anyone's listening, uh, um, I guess we don't, I mean, obviously I don't really know what's going on in people's heads, but what I can say is people who are like suffering, or I don't mean to put quotes, literally people who are suffering or having a hard time during that actively dying phase, they will show you. So people who are like, you don't know what's going on. You don't know if they're not suffering. You don't know what they're thinking. True. I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know what consciously is happening to their consciousness because none of us know. But I can tell you just from doing this for a very long time or long enough to see the difference, right? People who are uncomfortable and are restless and agitated or in pain or not, they will physically show you with their body. Yes. They will show you. Baby, they're going to be restless. They're going to be agitated. If you touch them, they're going to wince. Mm -hmm. If you turn them, they're going to yell, you know, whatever it is. And people who are not doing that are likely feeling either nothing or okay, you know, whatever, you know, okay in the sense of pain wise or agitation wise. Um, now, as far as like the consciousness stuff, I know what you mean. I don't, we don't know right. what's going on. It's, it's, we yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird concept. And, and I mean, we, we can talk about death and what happens after death, but it's, it's all speculation, you know, and it's, yeah. it's all, it's all speculation. I, we're, we, we would just be making stuff up and, and most likely it's a, it's a confirmation bias anyway, if we talk about it, you know, uh, it's a belief. what's that? We'll see me all in my comments. Just a belief. People in my comments all the time say, I know what's happening. And I, and I'm like, and good for you. Right. Like, I'm not mad about that. Like, glad. I'm glad you have a belief, but that's all it is, is a belief. Yeah. It's not. It's not that. No, and the only way to find out is know. to die. And then, and then, you know, it's, that's kind of too late to come back and tell anybody what it was like. Right. What? We're all going to figure it out because we're all going to die. So I think <laughs> there's a, there's a song lyric and, and, and I won't, I, I believe it's by Jason Isbell and it says nobody dies with dignity, but that's kind of your goal, right? Is to make, is to provide dignity for these people. Oh, wait, can you, you cut out. I, I didn't oh, hear what you said. I'm sorry. I, I referenced a, a song lyric by Jason Isbell. I don't know if you're familiar with the artist, um, but it's, no. it's a song called Elephant. It's a song called Elephant. 
And okay. he talks, it's, it's, it's the elephant in the room. Basically this woman is dying. And it, the one, the one lyric says, nobody dies with dignity. And I think that mm. I, I would say hospice is there to, to try and provide that, the dignity in death. Yeah. I wonder what he meant by that. I disagree. Well, that's, that's why I bring it up. And, and, and obviously it's just a song lyric, but it, it kind of leaves you thinking and wondering, well, well, I can see where, where some of that is because death can be a very grotesque and painful experience as well. And especially if you're doing it alone or unsupported or, or I don't, in a variety of situations. And that's where I say, okay, well, your job as a hospice nurse. And if you do your job well as a hospice nurse is to provide that dignity for that death. Yeah. And it, and I think that comes with education in the beginning. A lot of that, the start of that is education. Yeah. In the beginning. And I think a lot of that is. It, yeah. if, Sorry, I was. Go ahead. Like Googling this as we speak. What's that? <laughs> no, oh, okay. Uh, I said I'm. What's that? Speak. I, th I think a lot of that is teaching that to, to first responders as well, is teaching some dignity in these situations where it's not just hospice, but we're, we're to what we call a stoppage in, in our, in our, in my department, it's called a stoppage of breathing. Obviously the person is dead. And we're going there to provide CPR if they don't have a DNR. And so in that situation, our job is to be as, to provide as much dignity as possible while trying to either save their life or, or allow loved ones to grieve after we tell them that there's nothing that we can do. And, and, and that goes back to that empathy. And it goes back to that. How do you tell somebody, how do you talk to somebody about dying? And I think that it's something that needs to be approached more often and, and in much more depth for first responders. And, and I yeah. wonder how we can do that and, and how we can provide that kind of training other than there's your first dead person, go tell the family that they've, that they've died. No, I don't have an answer yeah. either. Me, now that I'm a hospice nurse and doing this stuff and like, I couldn't, there is so much trauma, I think. And you tell me, but because I've never been a first responder, but I just feel like there has to be so much trauma with that for the person and for the first responders. I think that like having to the first PR in like a ninety, you know, the first we, we we get young guys in here, young guys and women that, that have never had much life experience and they come in at 19, 21, you know, and they come in as, as you know, wide eyed and green to life, really. And they, they experience yeah. their first dead body. And it's kind of, you, you, you have to touch base with them. Yeah. All right. how do you, how do you feel about that? It, you, are you okay? What questions do you have? Um, did you see how I talked to the, to the, to the, to the family? Did you see how, you know, we didn't make a big fuss of things. We'd try to stay out of the way while still trying to provide the aid and the comfort and the care that we we're supposed to. Um, it's, it is, uh, it takes some getting used to, but then I think that there, there's a, there's, kind of a pendulum because then you see these other guys who have seen it so many times they're just like oh fuck another dead body and then so oh, I, totally. I, I, I would imagine I that you're, you're approaching like, kind of that that compassion fatigue that people talk about at that point and and that's got to be something that's battled against as well yeah i completely had compassion fatigue in the icu completely i was totally shut down never cried about anything never thought about it twice like it's probably not really true, but that's how it right. felt. Like, um, 
Yeah, that's definitely not true. Because I had like a little flashback thing in, in my bed the other day of like someone, I remember we were turning someone who had been like chronically in the ICU for like eight months and they had like wounds right. on their back, like the size of basketballs. And like, uh, I just, yeah, but like, I just, at least for me, I didn't know, I don't know. I mean, I had to leave. I had to leave the ICU. That's what I had to do. Like, I don't have an answer because like my answer was, I gotta get out of here. I can't keep doing this. Well, how do you... Um, between the ICU and trauma, uh, excuse me, and hospice nursing, what, how how are you taking care of yourself? What do you do to 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 not get to that spot in hospice care? What what are you doing for yourself? Yeah, well, hospice. Um, I don't know if I would because I really really like it and I really really believe in it and I feel like it's you can you don't have to totally hurry up and care. Um, and uh, the main thing is I cannot do full-time nursing. So I can do full-time nursing as an independent employee, which I can get to in a second, but I can never be a full-time employee for an organization or a company because they will uh, suck you dry <laughs> and burn right. you out. But that's, that's my, I, get, I can get a whole other soapbox about how the medical profession, uh, you know, all the institutions that are for profit, no matter what they say, um, will suck you dry. Like the reason why we're all burnt out is because of that, I think. So that's why I love working for a unionized company. I live in California, not only California, but whatever states have unions for nurses, I think you should, that's where you should nurse. And I will work full time as a nurse, but not for, an, not for a hospital. So what I usually do is either agency nursing where I can work still 40 hours a week, but I'm not a full-time employee okay. because of a, a hospital because then you can kind of come and go as you please. You don't have to like follow all of their rules, which is like you have to work this weekend or you have to work on call or you have yeah. to work X, Y, and Z. You don't have to do that. So what I have done is I work per diem for a large organization um, that will always need me. So if I wanted to work seven days a week, I could, uh, but I don't have to. So I'll work, you know, five days and then I'll be off for five days or I'll work uh, for four days and then work two days the next week and then work six days the next week, just depending on what I want to do. And um, that's how I made it work for me. That's the only way I could do nursing now, any kind of nursing. But I wouldn't, I would probably only stick with hospice because I actually love it. But I can love hospice because I have a really good work-life balance. I also have worked really hard on having really, really good boundaries. Mm. So like I'm, I, uh, uh, yeah, I just put myself, this sounds, it's embarrassed for me to even say it. I'm still a little awkward about it, but I think it's real. And I think I, everyone should do this, but I put myself first. Like I don't give family is my personal cell or my work cell. They have to call the office and ask for me if they want to talk to me. And if I'm working, great. If I'm not there, I have to trust that there are other nurses that can help them, right? This idea of like, only I can do it. Or I think there's a lot of martyrism yeah. in nursing, you know, like uh, not only because you're kind of taught to be that way, right? So I'm trying to teach other people to not be that way. And that's how I have been able to survive you know, 15 years in this, in this career, because, um, I say no to my employer. So if I can't do something, I say, no, I never work overtime. Uh, if I don't want to, if I want to, I will. Um, I don't give my personal sell out to anybody, uh, anyone I work with anyway, you know, any, any families. Um, yeah. So I've just really, really worked on that. And that's the only way I've been able to keep all of my empathy and compassion and it makes me a better nurse 
even though it feels like maybe it wouldn't. But I think it really does. Well, and I imagine that all that stuff you just mentioned, you know, the the lack of offering up a personal cell phone, the boundaries, all of that is, is something that's in in one way or another you cover with with families when you start with them. Yeah, and right. So they're well yes, aware of it. Yes. They're not going to ask for your number because you've already said, hey, this is how I do it. That doesn't mean you get less of my attention or less of my care or less of whatever. It's just the way that it works for me. Yeah. And so that's how we have to do it. Yes, you have to be able to say no to people. So there are family, you know, um, yeah, I've just found that like it will work. If you if you set up uh, very, very clear expectations and very, very clear boundaries and you don't cross them, it will work. And p- people who don't want that, um, they can, you know, like if, empl- if an employer doesn't want that, then I don't have to work there. But that's never happened, right? I'll just have a nursing union. That's what I mean by nurse. Like, and families always, I haven't run into any families that have not wanted to work with me because of that. Well, no, because you're providing the care that they need no matter what. Yeah. But that that advice that you gave, you know, the the overtime, the boundaries, the, you know, not giving out your personal information too much and separating, separating your work, your personal from your work and that work-life balance. I mean, Jesus Christ, that can go across the board for every occupation, especially first responders. And I think more of us in the first responder realm have to adhere to that because boundaries are a terrible thing for us. The overtime is a terrible, we can make a ton of money, but you know what? You work 24 hours at a time for that ton of money. And so it, it, you're, you're, you're sacrificing this chunk of your life, your actual life for this job. And it's for yeah. a job that's I mean, not to get too personal, not to get too into it, but it's a job that's going to replace you when you walk out the door at the, at the end of your career. You know, they're not going to, they're not going to yeah. think twice about you. Same thing in nursing. They don't think yeah. twice about you when you walk out. They don't think twice about you. Right. No, no. Especially organizations, hospitals, they don't right. care. <laughs> they don't, you know, don't get me started. <laughs> and I also will say, just for anyone who's, who is wondering, it's actually, it's really, really hard to start out having boundaries, just FYI. You're not everyone's favorite person, yeah. especially with the employees, employees and coworkers. Because the employee will say, well, if you don't do it, so-and-so will have to do it. Or if you don't do it, no one else will do it. That's not nope. my problem. And people will say, well, then the patients suffer. Uh, yes, they do. And guess whose problem that is? The hospital who's, re- who's refusing to hire more right. workers. Yeah. It's this doesn't have to fall on me. It's not. So it's really hard for people to understand it, that. And it's really uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable, but I had to do that for my own well-being. And now that I've done it for a few years, it's easier. And I see how well it has helped me that it's like, okay, I can do it. And guess what? People will follow suit. Other people you work with will start doing what you're doing because they're seeing it's working right. for you. I'd, I'd like to, I, I've been reframing it from, oh, this is a staffing issue, kind of putting it back on us to, no, this is a management issue. This is a mismanagement mm-hmm. issue. And until hospitals or fire departments or police departments can get their shit together and manage correctly and, and do the things to, to keep people, keep enough people so they can staff across the board, it's not a me issue. This is a mismanagement issue and, and, and I'm not going to pay the price for it. And I'm not going to pay the price for it. Exactly. So, Exactly. <laughs> I, can, I can really go on and on well, about that. <laughs> I know that we talked about having an hour and we're approaching that number right now. So, uh, and we haven't even touched because you and I talked about it briefly. You have your own personal story and, and we haven't even touched that in this, this hour. So maybe we can get back together and talk about that. And I can 
I can delve into the sure. personal journey a little bit with you because it's kind of what I do. Um, but I promised you at the beginning of the show that I would ask you three questions and one was supposed to be way back in the first minute or so. And I forgot because, you know, shiny things. Uh, what's the last song you listened to? Um, I already had one in my head and I already forgot. <laughs> See, speaking about okay, shiny so things. I, I know. So what I don't want to do is start singing it, <laughs> but it's just kind of what I have to do. Okay. Remember in the early 2000s, that song that was like, oh God, I'm going to start <laughs> singing it because I cannot think of it. The song that goes, mm, what you say, because mm, you always meant well. No. Please tell me. <laughs> I'm not getting it. But keep singing. I mean, that's great. Oh, no, no, no. Um, Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I'm going to look it up. Because it, it means, I want to say this word because it's truly the last song. And it really gave me all okay. the feels. Because it was like, hold on. I was really thinking I was going to do it. And you were going to like know exactly what I was talking <laughs> about. Okay, yeah. Hide and Seek by Imogen. By Imogen. Heath. Okay, I know the artist. Yeah. Do you know yeah, what I'm I, about? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not familiar with that song, but I've heard the artist before. Um. Yeah. So that song it br brought me back to like the early 2000s and all the feels, and I love. Awesome. That. Perfect. All right. So my last song. The um. I promise you. Also, I'd also explain to you why I ask for an everyday carry. Uh. I. I term. I. I. Bash, actually just bastardized the title of this show um, from a book called The Things They Carried. And it's by an author named Tim O'Brien. And it's his experience in Vietnam. And the, what I took away from that book is these are the things that it was a, it followed a platoon. And it, these were the things they took into war, into battle. So a, a radio, a, an M16, a grenade launcher, whatever it is. But they also talks about the things they brought out of battle. And that was, you know, what happened in battle and those memories and those scars that stay with you. And so the focus of my show is on the, the traumas and the mental health and the recovery of, of first responders. And so we also carry tools into a call, whether it be a, a, an aid bag, a, a, a life pack or, or a f whatever tools we need for fire, uh, fighting fire. But we bring a lot of shit out of those calls that stay with us as well. If we don't process it, whether we process them correctly or not, they, we bring them out with us. And so that's why the show is called the things we all carry. Um, so, to that end, I like to ask every guest about an everyday carry, something you carry every day with you that if you leave home without it, you just feel naked. You just feel like you feel incomplete without it. So superficially, I could say my yeah. phone. I'm going to start outlawing that answer uh, pretty soon, by the way. <laughs> I know, right? Like uh, that would make me feel naked if I didn't have it because I really use it for like everything, including getting around the city. But I think um, like on an emotional, like deeper level, the things I bring with me, I, what I um, would be like the need, like uh, the, the, I think so often we don't want to feel uncomfortable. So we um, try to fix everything, especially if something's like mm -hmm. wrong, we'll try to like fix words or fix it with like, don't do that. Don't say that. No, it's not going to be like that. And what I try to do when I meet everybody, especially on hospice and the families, is not be that. To be, to show up and to uh, listen tr and respond truthfully and honestly. I don't know if that's something I bring with me, but that's what I try. I always try to bring like the truth with me. 
not like the truth, like just the truth of the moment. Like I had some lady truly ask me if she was really asking, am I going to close my eyes and see God? That's the the question she asked. And I remember thinking like, shit, right? (laughs) you're asking me like, and I sat there and like, I think the the first response was to be like, yeah, I think so. Or, you know, like try to, and I just sat there for a little bit and just was silent and said truthfully, because the truth is, I don't know. That's what I said. I go, I don't know. Yeah, because it, that, in, in that moment, that brings ahead. a whole set of, of beliefs from everybody. You 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 bring your own beliefs to the situation. She brought her own beliefs to the situation. Right. Hell, I was raised by my mom, and I brought a different set of beliefs to that situation. So, how do you answer that? Yeah. You're right. I don't know. I go, I don't know, and and so my whole point is like I answered truthfully, and that and that's like truth will set you free. Because in that moment, we both laughed because I think you can't take it the wrong way when it's like the right. truth, right? So she laughed and I laughed and she goes, I guess I'll find yeah. out. Yeah. Like, And it's like, yeah. And so I try to bring that into the world. I don't always, it doesn't always work, especially when I'm, when I'm not, I work, it's so much easier for me to do that. In my real life, it's not, in my like n- normal everyday life, it's not always oh, yeah. that easy, but I bring the bring the truth with me, I guess, or like the silence, the patience, the not needing to fix things. Yeah. That's it. Cause that brings it's an out. interesting space, especially for, for people like us. I mean, you're a nurse, you, you trained to fix things as yeah. a firefighter, as EMT, we trained to fix things. That's we're, we're called out for everything that nobody can figure everything that people can't figure out how to fix. They call the fire department. If you can't shut your water off yeah. and it's flooding everywhere, they call the fire department and, and, in those situations where we walk into a house and we can't fix that patient sitting on the bed, you kind of feel helpless. And I had to, early on, I I reframed my thinking from, um, okay, well we failed because that person died. Well, we didn't fail because if we did our job correctly and we hit all our marks and, and everything we were supposed to do on that call, we did, we did our job correctly. We didn't fail. And it's a, it's a reframing of thought at times. Yeah. All right. So, Give us a book recommendation. I know you already gave us one, so I'm going to exclude it. So give me a a book that you'd like the audience to to be interested in or learn something from. Well, first off, my book. Okay. (laughs) My book is coming June, June 11th. So we have some Oh, hell yeah. Congratulations. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um. I don't know if I'm allowed to actually give the title now that I think about it because I haven't actually well, announced it. Well, you tell me when it comes out and, and I'll, I'll have it out on the show. Hospice Nurse, Hospice Nurse Julie's book. But um, let me think Let me think of another one. So I, you know, I hate to say this, but really anything by Barbara Carnes. Like if we're talking about hospice and end of life stuff, anything by Barbara Carnes, all of her books. Because what I think is at that time, people can't really read like they are in a stressful right. time they just need to see things have it be easy like all the information easily out there not a lot to digest and that is all of barbara Carnes' books they're all like little pamphlets but they say and she writes so perfectly it's like the perfect combination of what people need when they're in this really stressful time but they need information and they need to see it quick understand it and barbara Carnes does that and she has several books like that so one of them like i said gone from my site is the main one, but she has a ton of books like that. She has some for caregivers, some for patients, some for nurses. 
So truly anything by Barbara Carnes. All right. With a K. If you All right. Barbara Carnes. Perfect. With a K. I will uh we'll have that in the show and people can search it out and and maybe there's something in there just for first responders they, to, to take away from that because they can see what what the you know kind of the processes are of, of death and dying. Yeah. Oh, totally. It's amazing. I, I love it. I love all of her stuff. She has stuff for palliative care too. She has stuff for um, specifically just dementia because that's like a whole mm-hmm. another ball game. She's really well. Dementia is another big one for for first responders because that is that's like that's the boom in in healthcare right now is is dementia wards or, 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 you know, the, the memory wards or whatever you want to call them. Um, you know, they, they go by different names and probably some are acceptable, some aren't, but, um, they're popping up everywhere, especially where I am. So they're massive facilities and it, it, it is that you just have to know how to deal with, with patients, dementia, Alzheimer's, whatever it is. It's so hard. That yeah. disease. Oh yeah. And, and it's kind of, it's kind of interesting because you've got to pick a way that somebody's going to die. You know, I, I think you would rank them, and d- dementia, or Alzheimer's, is is one that I, I I don't wish on anybody, obviously. And I'm I'm so happy that that didn't happen to my parents. You know, yeah, I was just I just did a video about that because the actual death of dementia is usually pretty peaceful, mm-hmm. but then 15 years prior, right? So it's like it's such a long, drawn out disease. Yeah. Usually, yeah, and it takes such a toll on so families. Long. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, listen, thank you very much. Thank you I enjoyed very much. the conversation. And Boston? Is that why you have a I was Boston? I was born in Lowell, Massachusetts. So oh, okay. I'm in Virginia. Cool. Oh, you're yeah. in Virginia. Yeah, okay, my family, cool. my dad's side of the family is, is from Massachusetts, the Boston, Lowell, Brockton area. Uh, but I, I grew up oh. down in, in Florida for the majority of my life and then joined the Army and oh. just kind of traveled around, ended up in, in Virginia about 20 years ago, and it's, it's home now. So, oh, wow. Cool. But uh, if you're willing, I would love to have you back on to talk about your personal journey. I know. I'm sorry nope, we didn't get to okay. it. I am yeah. willing. We can, we can, let's get this one out and then we can touch base again and, and find a time. Okay. All right. Perfect. Well, go enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy, uh, enjoy the weather out there in California. We're going to get a snowstorm tomorrow. Daily sunshine, baby. I'm telling you. There you go. Life. <laughs> All right. Take All care. Right, take care. Thank you very much. And we're out.